the book of St. Mark, chapter 16, and we'll read verse 9 through 18. The Bible reads, verse 9, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, Jesus, the Bible says, appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who'd been with him and as they mourned and wept. And as they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went to the country. And they went and told the rest. But they did not believe them either. Verse 14. Later, he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table. Notice, he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table. And he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. May I read that again? He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those whom had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe, well, he'll be condemned. I love verse 17. And these signs, hallelujah, shall follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if anything deadly or if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. In fact, they will lay hands on the sick and the sick will recover. I want to continue this subject matter this morning, building God's house one family, right? One soul at a time. One family at a time and one soul at a time. One more time. Building God's house. How? One family at a time. One soul at a time. Before you see it, just look at someone and say, neighbor, we're building God's house. Go ahead and tell them also one family at a time. Uh huh. And one soul at a time. Please be seated if you can in the presence of the Lord on this morning. Hallelujah. Listen, we're in the middle of a series. I'm going to take a few moments just to review and catch up. But the reality is simply this. We're still building and we're building a spiritual house. This is not a blueprint. This is not a building fund. This is not uh, building designs or, or brick and mortar or licenses, but we're building a spiritual house here in Charlotte in this North Lake area. In fact, today we're going to continue on with the schematics, continue on with the purposes and maybe even a clear and concise plan of building God a spiritual house. I do want you to know that when I talk about building a house for God, um, advancing his church, advancing community, and advancing the Great Commission. I hadn't talked a lot in a while about the vision of the house, but I thought this morning it would be good to remind you of why we're here, what it is that God has called this church to do. We've taken the complex and made it very simple. Our vision, our heart, our post is to love God, to love one another, and to serve the world. You may, say, you may say that's so elementary, it's so easy. Certainly it can be more biblical or theological or ecclesiastical than that. 
doesn't need to be. Let's take the great commandments, love God and love one another, right? And let's take the great commission, go and preach the gospel. Put them together. Let's try it one more time. To love God, to love one another, and serve the world. Uh, thank you for the praise team song today, because that song ministered to my heart about seeing, about manifestation. And I thought to myself, you know what? The song was more prophetic than I even thought, because you know what? I need you to know what it is that I see. And, and if that sounds familiar, think about the prophet who said, Lord, touch the servant's eyes that they may see what I see. What did the man of God see? He saw that there were more that were for us than those that were against us. You know what I see? I see the entire sanctuary filled with chairs. And I see it not just once, but twice, maybe even three times on each weekend. What do you see? Not just a Sunday morning facility or a Thursday night facility, but a seven-day-a-week facility that is an incubator for education, an incubator for entrepreneurial, an incubator for innovation, an incubator where people can get help or they can get some hope right? If we can't help you, at least we're going to give you some hope. If we can't provide hope, maybe we can feed you or care for you or minister to whatever needs you may have in your life. During this series, we want City Church North Lake to be a safe place. A safe place, again, where people can be made whole in whatever area of your life or family you're seeking God in. You know, I believe that throughout this series and uh, I want to make sure there are tangibles. They call them in corporate America uh, deliverables. What will be our deliverables after we've shouted and danced and had a Holy Ghost good time? Number one, we're bringing a 20-minute what we call drive time prayer back to the church. Every Thursday morning, I'm going to ask that you join my wife and I for just 20 minutes of prayer on a conference call. We call it drive time because most of you all will probably be commuting to work or from work at that time. If you're at home, 20 minutes. I do it every Tuesday with the fellowship uh, of churches, but on Thursdays, I thought, you know, if we're going to believe God for revival, and if we're going to see God move powerfully, I don't think it can be done without prayer. It just can't be a, a, a word of prayer. It has to be undergirded and one in prayer. And so on those Thursday mornings at 8 a.m., it's just a conference call number, little passcode, but come on in for a 20-minute drive time of prayer. I talked a little bit already about Labor Day weekend. Some travel on Labor Day weekend. Many will be here. Let's make it a festive day. Let's make it a celebratory, wonderful day of seeing God touch the lives of people. So September 3rd, Labor Day weekend, casual attire, outdoor baptism. It's going to be a phenomenal Sunday. In fact, we hadn't done a friends and family day in years. People often want to know, how did the church grow? How did the church excel? How did the church increase? And a lot of times the secret in the sauce was, yes, the Lord blessed, and yes, there was a grace, but it was, it was these invite cards. That's all it was. It was an invite card. People took time to invite someone to church. It wasn't radio. It wasn't TV. And we spent thousands, thousands of dollars on TV, on radio ads. It's not radio or TV, even in this day, Internet. It was old-fashioned word of mouth. And two became four. And four became eight, and 16, and 32, and 64, 128, and so on, and so on, and so on. And so we want to encourage you that September will be a month to remember. We'll have the NFL cook-off, kickoff Sunday, the following Sunday, wear your favorite jerseys, have a great time, invite some guests. We'll come back September the 17th for National Baptist Church Sunday. 
And then everything concludes for the month with our 29th church anniversary and founders conference. Again, it's going to be a tremendous month. And what I'm believing God for is a platform. I'm believing God for a kickstart of something again that will be epic. You know, last Sunday we, we, we preached from the message, heart of the house, heart of the house, having a heart of the house, not for the house, but having a heart of the house. We did part one a couple of weeks ago. Last Sunday, we did part two. If you remember, we looked at Luke chapter 14. Remember, the Bible says that a certain man had a great supper and he invited many. His servant came at supper time saying, everyone that you invited the first time is ready and, and, or, or, or the dinner is ready and now it's time for the second invitation. It was customary to have two invitations. They would have been to save the date. Then they would come back for a second one that said, the table is spread, the food is hot, come on in. But what happened? in the parable that Jesus gave the church. He says, you know, everybody said they show up at the first invitation, but no one showed up at the second invitation. And the Bible says that the, the guy giving the supper became angry. And he said, you know what? Go and find the lame, the maimed, the blind, and anyone out in the hedges and the highways and compel them to come. Because right now we want to invite people to Jesus. We want to invite people to church. We want to invite people to community. The expectation that God has. I'm thinking about the scripture right now. Where the Bible says the world and the earth groans with labor pains waiting for the true revealings of the sons and daughters of God. What you see happening in Maui, what you see happening in California, what we see happening across our country, what we see happening with all of the social injustices and we see all of the crime and the lawlessness and everything we're dealing with, the political tension, these are birthing pains. Do you understand that? These are things that are happening. It's not calculated. This is God stirring the land. And the church, he's readying for revival. And while so many churches have lulled themselves to sleep, we must be open and listening to what God wants to do in the earth. And so we walked away last week with three or four takeaways. Remember this? Number one, overcome the inconvenience. Overcome the inconvenience of coming to church. The church should never be an inconvenience to you. I know you're making money. I know you're doing a whole bunch of great things in the community. I know you're building your resume. But coming to church ought not be duty-bound. Bible says that the Lord's word is not, uh, the Lord's burden, commandments are not burdensome. So his house of word should never be a burden to you. But if the truth be told, our actions, our inconsistencies, speaks of inconvenience in our busy schedules, trying to change the world, we got to go by the church now every once in a while. Church should never be an inconvenience. It should be the main thing. Number two, we said this, overcome the excuses of serving in God's house. Remember the three excuses they gave? One said, I'm going to buy a piece of ground. I can't come to the dinner party. The other said, I'm bought a five oxen of yo uh, five yokes of oxen. I have them building a business. I can't come to the party. And then the third said, well, I just got married. And there ain't no way my wife, the old lady, gonna let me out the house. All these excuses. But if you're gonna be God's man, if you're gonna be God's woman, overcome any and every excuse to be active in the house of God. Third and finally, remember we said this, take personal ownership and have a heart. Take personal ownership. And that what joins me right now in this city. I see people taking personal ownership. You can see it in their actions. You can see it in their talk. You can feel it in, in, in their movement. They're taking ownership. They're taking responsibilities. And it may not be a whole lot, but whatever God gave them as an assignment, they take that seriously. And I say that to say this to you today, as we continue to build 
and believe God. God has something special for every one of you. I don't want you to think for a moment in this church that God is all about his corporate. He hadn't forgotten about the things that you've been praying for, you've been believing him for, that you so desperately want him to do in your life. Amen? Clap your hands, somebody give God praise. This morning in our text, we see in Mark chapter 16, and I love Mark chapter 16, by the way. I don't, I don't want to have a theological conversation because there are a lot of theologians who don't read Mark 16. In fact, uh, most Bible scholars would suggest that the latter half of Mark 16 wasn't canonized. In other words, it's not, it doesn't belong in the Bible. It was too spiritual, too spooky, too super phenomenon. But I'm old-fashioned. I believe, my God, if God saw fit for it to be there, it's there for a reason. And so that being said, Mark chapter 16, I want to talk. Now, early in the morning on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom came seven demons. May, may I slow down and talk for a little bit? I want to thank the media team because I rushed some pictures to them at the last second, and they may hit it, they may not. If they don't, it ain't on them, it's on me. Because they get on me for submitting last-second pictures, and uh, that's on me and not on them. But I believe they're going to get it right today. Um, there are the first set of pictures only at this time is what you and I would probably think Mary Magdalene must have been and looked like. One of the joys of going to Israel for 20-some-odd times is new excavations. You can never go to Israel and they have not discovered something new. The city of David is a phenomenal thing by itself. But the last two trips to Israel, for me personally, it's been a place called Magdala. Magdala. Magdala was the home of Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala. And what's interesting now, to, uh, now and again, I started going, my wife and I went to Israel for the first time uh, when I was a grad student at, at Gordon-Conwell University. We didn't thought we'd ever go again. What we see today, we didn't see 20 years ago right? They were building a hotel on this site, and they discovered some ancient ruins. And five, six, seven years later, I was there this past year, now the whole town of Magdala has now been discovered even the more 2,000 years ago. And it's a beautiful, and, and listen, you're talking about a five-star hotel they put on that property? It's gorgeous. I got pictures and everything, I just didn't bring them with me. But this is the Mary Magdalene we grew up with in Vacation Bible School. But let's go deep into the text. The Bible says that Mary Magdalene had not one, not two, not three, but seven demons cast out of her. See how quiet y'all are? Because that's hard for us in 2023 to imagine. It's hard for our Western civilization, kosher mindset to embrace. If Mary Magdalene would have lived today, we may not call them demons. We'd call them mental disorder. We'd call them the occult. Maybe she'd look a little bit about, maybe these pictures would help you look and see perhaps what Mary might look like today. She doesn't look like the floss and gloss and the blush and the white and the blonde 
that the days of King James may have painted her. I won't go on somewhere with this. But Mary Magdalene today probably would have struggled with schizophrenia. Are you with me? She probably would have struggled, next set of pictures, with bipolar. Mary Magdalene today could have dealt with the occult and black magic. She may have dealt with deeper, deeper, real deep bouts of depression. We don't know. But we do know one thing. Jesus cast seven demons out of her. Why? Well, please understand, there were no antidepressants then. There were no antipsychotics. There was no lithium, no Prozac, no Zoloft, no Paxil. There's nothing of the sort medicine-wise. So there was nothing they could depend on but the power of God. Wonder what would happen today if we didn't have Praxel, Zoloft, Nexium, Lithium, antipsychotics. But the face of Mary Magdalene is still quiet, I see. The face of Mary Magdalene would have been someone we would have thought less of. Certainly not the one that Jesus chooses to appear to first. Where are we going with this message? Isn't it amazing how no, bad, no matter how bad your past, no matter how dark your past, no matter how painful the struggle, no matter the rap, the reputation, or the cred, no matter what you've gone through, Jesus is a forgiving God. He loves you with an everlasting love. And the last I checked, Romans 8 and 1 says, now, now, therefore, now, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Hello? Anybody talking? Everybody all right? What about the book of John, chapter 8, verse 36? Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. 1 Peter 1.18, we are redeemed not by corruptible things as silver and gold, but we are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a Mary Magdalene in every one of our families. Uh, there's some Mary Magdalene's in the room. Uh, you hadn't always dressed the way you dress right now. You hadn't always been able to praise the Lord with your, your name brand pocketbook and your sequins and come up here driving a nice European car. There was a day and a time. But Jesus, the Bible says, I, and you know what? I, for whatever reason, Mark wanted us to know it was seven demons. And I, I, we don't know what they were. We don't know what they were. I would love to fill in the blank. I'd love to ask some stuff. But I can't do that because we don't know. What we do know is this. In the court of opinion, in the court of media, in the court of man, we would have buried her a long time ago. Let's go back to the word. He first appeared to Mary, who lived in a town called Magdala, of whom were seven demons. She sent or went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe. I wonder how many of us struggle with self-worth, self-confidence, dignity, shame, guilt because of the past. Let's not underestimate this point. 
And I know we, we're talking a very man-strong world back 2,000 years ago. But Mary was just as, Mary Magdalene was just as much as a disciple as the other 11. How do you know? Luke chapter 8, she was one of those ladies in Luke 8 and 1 who provided out of her substance for Jesus' itinerary ministry. How do we know? She was there. She's one of the only eyewitnesses who saw him alive, who saw him crucified, who saw him buried, and now see him alive. How is it that she's not considered a true apostle? You know, the word apostle really means one who's seen the Lord. Now, we got apostle in every street corner, right? Everybody that's seen the Lord must have heard from the Lord. But the true word apostle meant one who has seen the Lord. If anybody seen the Lord, it would have been Mary. But our misogynic, is that the word, misogynic, uh, no, misogynistic, uh, man, uh, ego, and world, we won't give that woman that credit. The truth of the matter is, she was somebody powerful. Now, notice this. God takes her misery and now turns it into ministry. He takes the pain. And you know, my wife just said it right. Did you hear that? My wife, my wife just said that right. She said, listen, sometimes it's the pain and the pressure and the experiences you go through that gives you the best credibility to minister to somebody else. Ain't that something? You're so busy cursing your pain and downing your path and going through all with you. God allowed all that to happen for a reason. So now when you minister, now when you counsel, now when you coach, now when you advise, you can say, baby, sit down. I've been there, done that. I know what it's all about. I pray I can be an example of what life looks like on the other side of healing, on the other side of restoration, on the other side of deliverance, on the other side of ministry. I had a phone call this past week, one of our church mothers in the fellowship, two weeks ago, one of the church mothers that, that meets us for prayer online on Tuesdays mornings, we had a conversation. And she said, Pastor Stevens, I, am, I love doing what I do as a counselor. I, I serve in my city as one of the official chaplains in the area of drugs and alcohol and life-challenging substances. I work with Celebrate Recovery, and, uh, and she's the church mother at the church, right? And, 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 and she was saying how God uses her in very powerful and prophetic ways. Is it passing? What people really don't realize is this. I was so strung out on drugs. I was so gone and gone to promiscuity and alcohol and low living. But God saved me. God cleaned me up. God turned my life around. She said, it is a joy. I don't get paid. It's an honor. And as I heard this woman talk, I said, now I see why you pray the way you pray on these calls. I see why you go all in like the way you do. Because to whom much is forgiven, much are thankful of. Same like to me, many of us can rise up and do more for the kingdom, do more for the Lord, do more for his house. Why? Because whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Back to the text, the Bible says, after that he appeared in a form to two others as they walked in the country. And they went and told the rest, but they didn't believe them either. Later, he appeared to the living at the side of the table, and they rebuked, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe for the second time the church is at the table. Now, I love quoting that quote, but I'm not going to quote it today, right? Because this isn't a good table. They are literally at the table of fear. 
They're at the table of comfort. They're at the table of inside the four walls of the church. And I said, God, ain't that something? Here we are 2,000 years later, and we are still at the table of fear. We're still inside the four walls of the church. We won't go out. We won't make a difference because of theory of any and everything that comes into our lives. Let me encourage every one of you. The Bible says that Jesus could do no great thing among them because of their unbelief. Matthew 13, 58. It's not so much that God's hand isn't slack that he can't save. It's not so much God didn't want to bless you, but it is your fear. It is your unbelief. It is your doubting that handcuffs God from wanting to move in your life. Somebody say amen. So my question begs to be asked right now, what is it that you're fearing that God wants to do? Who is it that you're fearing because that hinders God from moving in your life? Too many of us are still in the house of safety and comfort, and we're at the table of paralysis, fears, and phobias. But Jesus comes, and he rebukes their unbelief. He rebukes their doubts, doubting, and he rebukes their hardness of heart. I'm almost finished. Let's keep reading. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes is baptized will be saved, but he who doesn't believe will be condemned. Now, a lot of times we like to talk about the positive part of that scripture and the biblical part, the scriptural part, the spiritual part, and the blessed part. But what about those who hear the word but don't believe the word and never will believe the word? Well, Jesus makes a promise. What so a man soweth that will he also reap. And sometimes we never come full circle and tell people there is a hell. And it is a real place called hell. And hell is still not the final destination because the Bible says that after the great judgment day, that hell will be cast into the lake of fire. Somehow or another, we don't have those conversations again. Fear. People are like, what are they going to think about me? What, 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 what does it matter what they think about you? What do they think about the Word of God? Most of us in this room got saved when we got saved, not because God was a loving God and he had a beautiful plan of salvation. Most of us in this room got saved because we didn't want to go to hell. Uh, let me try it over here on this side of the room. Let me say it again. When you got saved, uh, watch this, watch this. All right, how many of y'all in this room, how many of y'all saved? Let me just see you say, how many of you saying you know you're good and saved? All right, good. All right, remember when you got saved, okay? Because I still remember in September 1988, when I got saved and somebody witnessed to me, it wasn't the angels, it wasn't the golden gates or the pearly gates and the golden street. It wasn't the tree of life. None of that enticed me at that time. I didn't want to go to hell because I believed that there was a place called hell. And, and, and as I grew in my salvation, as I grew in my walk, in my walk with God, it, it, not that hell evaporated, not that hell wasn't there no more, but I began to now realize the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. Heaven is to be my destination. But now we've gotten to a point where we've sanitized the message so we dare mention anything that would offend anybody. Because we live in such a high offense world, such a cancel culture, politically savvy world, we have been muted as a people. And you've got a cousin, a nephew, a husband, who beckons to hear the word in its purest state. And we're so sensitive and so tolerant, and we just don't want to offend nobody. Give them the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I don't, have, I don't have to turn there, but I do want to give you the four pillars, the four facts. There's not three, there's not five, there's not a hundred, but there are four pillars. Think about the chair you're sitting in right now. Most of you all are sitting in a chair that has four legs. If you take one of those chairs away, excuse me, if you take one of those legs away, uh, you will cease to be sitting in that chair. Does anybody want to be an example? I didn't think so. So you're not going to need two legs. You're not going to be three legs. You're going to need four legs to sit on that 
chair. The gospel, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, is that Jesus lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. Now let's go back to Mark for a moment. Mark said, Jesus says in the book of Mark, go and preach the gospel. Man of God, we, we preach everything but the gospel. We preaching good feelings and motivational conversations and uh, I am this and you're that and everything's me and it's the gospel of meism. And then we blend it with a little bit of universalism. And then we want to blend it with a little bit of this good theology and, and, and that compromise. And, and, and we're trying to figure out, you know, why is it that we've lost so much respect in the world for the church? If the church would trust that God can move through the purity of the gospel, God doesn't need our additives. He doesn't need our extra efforts. Just do what he called us to do. So let's tell the world that Jesus lived. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who come, who came from the Father. The Bible says he is full of grace and he is full of truth. Someone say he lived. Let's tell the world that Jesus died. He didn't go into a comatose state. He didn't go missing, get zapped up by UFOs, but he died. But God demonstrated his love towards us while we were sinners. Christ, come on, he what? He died. Yes, he did. He died. You may say, I don't see the appeal in all of that. You don't have to worry about the appeal. It is the power of the gospel that will prick the heart. Number three, he was buried. Do you understand that? Bible says in John 19, and they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with spices, and the custom, as it was custom to the Jews, is to bury. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. Thank you, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, in the place that was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Come on, say he was buried. Again, you say, what is this, the significance of being buried? Well, the same significance of when you get water baptized. You are going down to the old, down in your flesh, but you're coming up in new man, coming up in new life. When Jesus got buried, or when he, was, when he died and was buried, they put him in a tomb, put the stone in place. And think about it just for a moment. Come on, you're smart and you're intelligent people, very logical people. Who in, in their right mind would have dared tampered with that tomb knowing that their life would have been at stake? Who in their right mind would have snuck up in there at three, four in the morning trying to tamper with the gospel message of Christ knowing they'd be immediately executed? But all oh, those three days, he was buried in that tomb. He runs a revival in hell. It gives everybody an opportunity who was in Abraham's bosom to come to know him. And that's why we believe right now that, oh, every knee shall bow and every eye, tongue shall confess to the glory of God that Jesus is Lord. And that might be okay if you was a Muslim. That might work for the Hindus. That might work for those who have self-proclaimed gods. But the one identifiable fact undeniable, uncontested, unquestioned fact that makes this gospel uniquely uh, exclusive than any other storyline or narrative is that he got up. He rose from the dead. Bible says that if 
for we have testified about God, 1 Corinthians 15, 15, that God has raised Christ from the dead. How is this applicable to you and I today? Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth, come on, and believe in your what? Heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes to righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. Let me pause for a moment. This is the gospel. Why is this important? Because this is what Jesus told us to do. We're very familiar with Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, but what about Mark 16? I like Mark 16. Because remember, it's not the great suggestion. It's called the great commandment. He commanded us to preach the gospel. He commanded us to share the story. The average church in America had 80 people 20, 30, 40 years ago. I believe that number now is dwindling down to 60. The 430,000 churches 20 years ago, that number is more likely now less than 350,000. Seven out of the eight major mainline denominations have either plateaued or now in major decline. I was reading an article the other day, and I'm, it was a, it was a secular um, uh, 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 periodical, but it talks about the number of empty churches that are for sale, churches that have now been turning into lofts, coffee houses, churches now that have been turned into anything but the house of God. The church, stay with me, stay with me, stay with me, stay with me. The church is in crisis. And I often joke and say I'm not concerned about other churches around us. What I know about this black church and this African-American church is that God's been good to us in these last 430 years. <laughs> Through the civil rights, slavery, Jim Crow, through all of the things we've had to deal with, even up until recently, God's been good to the bedrock of our community, the church. And so many times people say they don't need the church unless someone is married or buried. But the truth of the matter is, we need, oh God, you know what, I wasn't gonna do this. Let me see what time it is. Oh, I got, I got another two hours. I'm, thank you, Lord. <laughs> I wanted to show you something in my devotion and I didn't know if I was gonna do it or not. Would you turn real quick, just real quick, Psalm 73. This has been my private devotion, but it blessed me so much. I said, how can I read this and not share this with the saints on Sunday morning? You talking about a bomb. You talking about a, 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 a cataclysmic bomb, blow up. I mean, just a phenomenal. And then, and then you look at Psalm 73 and you compare it to Psalm 37. And all in my notes, I'm like, wow. It starts out by the, by the author, this is Asaph, who's the choir person. He says, man, look, my feet, my foot had almost slipped. And I almost came out of the new members classes because I started looking at the prosperity of the wicked. Seemed like, my God, I'm tithing, I'm living holy, I'm staying focused, doing all that I'm called to do. And seemed like, my God, good, uh, bad goes to worse. 
but it seemed like the sinner and the ungodly and the wicked. My God, every time I turn around, they got a new car, they get promoted on the job, they buying a home, and they taking off for this vacation, that vacation. My foot had almost slipped. But if you keep reading Psalm 73, you find out that God says, you know what? I will have the last say-so when it comes to the wealth of the wicked and the last say-so for those who really walk with me. I just want to encourage and remind every one of you all. But there's a particular scripture that blessed me so much. It was found in verse 21. He says, nevertheless, I am content continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards receive me into glory. Uh, God, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire but you. This psalmist, Asaph, he struggles in his contemplation. He's grappling with reality. And if you would be honest with me too, you too have those moments. As a single woman, as a young married couple, as a single parent, older folk. You say, God, this ain't right now. That ain't fair. But there's one last verse I got to give to you. Look at verse 17. All, he said, listen, first of all, he said, listen, uh, verse 13, 13. Verse 13, verse 13, 13. Surely I would have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands of innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened in mourning. If I had said I would speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Do y'all hear this psalmist talking? Do you hear this psalmist talking? You're talking about writing some songs. He said, forget the songs, forget the keyboard, forget the drum. I'm sick of all y'all. He says, it's too painful for me to, do, to, to even try to put all this together. Watch this. He says, verse 16, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I understood therein. You know what the Holy Ghost told me this past week? The Holy Spirit said this, the house of God is a safe place for you to increase perspective and understanding. And this is why the devil fights you from coming to Bible study. He fights you from being among the testimonies of the saints. The Bible says that they overcame the devil by the word of their testimony. So when you hear Brother Hunt give his testimony, and you hear old Brother Stephen give his testimony, now your faith has been built that what God did for Elder Hunt and what God did for Pastor Stephen, he can now do for you. When I come to the sanctuary, I came feeble, I came discouraged, I came wore out. But somewhere in the praise and worship, there was strength, there was vigor, there was was an anointing, somewhere in a hug, somewhere in a handshake, somewhere in eye contact. I just felt my help come on. And Jeremiah said, it was like fire in my bones. But yet the devil keeps you from Bible study. The devil keeps you from saints. The devil keeps you from assembling yourself. I would have slipped had it not been for the help that I get from the house of God. Let me give you four things and I'm finished. Four things and I'm finished. Verse 17, and these signs will follow those who believe. Are you still with me? And these signs, come on, say these signs. Uh, tell your neighbor, neighbor, you've been real quiet these last 15 minutes. I'm trying to figure out if you're still with me or not. You're still here tonight. And these signs will follow those who believe. Let's give you these five signs. Number one, they will cast out 
demons. Well, Pastor Stevens, do you really believe that that happens in 2023? Like it I do. I do. This is not figuratively. This is not an imagination. This is not hyper-spirituality. I believe that the demonic devils are cast out. Oh, I believe in therapy, and I believe in counseling, and I believe in some coaching. But every once in a while, you've got to get a discernment and realize, no, 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 that's not counseling. That ain't no therapy. Satan, in the name of Jesus. Now, I know kids will get bad from time to time, and when kids get bad, you just go ahead and do what you got to do. But every once in a while, say, no, 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 no. That's not a switch nor a belt, and that ain't no counseling. Satan, come out of here in Jesus' name. I believe in it. We believe more in the exorcist, and we believe in movies and Netflix, but we dare not believe the Word of God. How is it that you can believe Netflix, but you can't believe the Bible? How is it you can believe the exorcist, but you don't believe the Bible? Watching Black Candy Man and watching all the demonic stuff on TV, but yet you can't even read the Bible. Oh, I believe they will cast out demons. Number two, what did the Bible say happened? They will speak with new tongue. One version means that they will, those who were mute and those who could not talk, God's going to touch them to where they could talk again. Uh, but I like the Pentecostal version. I believe you're going to speak with another language. You'll speak in another tongue. How many testimonies have we heard over the years of people being in stranded or desperate places in different parts of the world, but God gave them the tongue of that land and got them out of a trouble or got them a healing or got them a blessing? Number three, the Bible says, watch this. Are you still with me? Number three, the Bible says, if, come on, say if. Come on, say if. Come on, say if. If. <laughs> They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly. Now, this does not give you a license to become an Appalachian snake handler for the glory of God. Okay? Uh, make that a reel on YouTube this week. Because we got some Appalachian snake handlers, friends, uh, in the community. This does not give you the excuse to go grab some snakes and say, I want to show you the power of God. I got a video I can send you where a man did just that in the name of the Lord. And about 30 minutes later, he was dead. Right? No. But if, like Paul in Acts 28, you just so happen to be camping and you slip up on something and it bites you, uh, uh-oh. While I'm driving to the hospital, I'm going to pray and believe God. Uh, Y'all didn't hear me, did you? I'm going, while I'm driving to the hospital, but I'm believing God. Y'all didn't hear me, did you? Let me try right now in the middle part. I'm, did y'all hear me? While I'm driving to the hospital, I'm going to believe God. Y'all can't see my finger. You can't. Y'all can't see my finger. My, the swelling's gone down. But I took a picture, showed my wife and my family. My finger was twice the size this past week. I, I bit a hangnail on Sunday. And Monday, it grew. Tuesday, it was throbbing. Wednesday, it was unbearable. Thursday, I was in Atlanta coming through Georgia. And I said, Sharon, I don't think I can make that to Charlotte. She said, you need to go to the ER. I said, oh, I don't need to go to the ER. I'm good. I can make it. I'm, we, we, we straight. I'm driving, hand about to fall off. Now my whole arm is numb. Now all the whole pre-diabetic stuff coming through my head. I just hung up the phone with my friend in Greenboro who got both the legs uh, uh, amputated. And now the devil's saying, all right, all right, you're going to be preaching with a, uh, with a clip. I'm telling you right now. I'm telling you right now. I said, devil, loose here. Do you not know I begin to call on the name of the Lord? 
I told my wife I prayed one of them jostling prayers. I got real specific with my prayer. I binded up every spirit of, of, of uh, infectious disease, the CDC, infectious control spirit. I binded up every spirit of, I mean, it was, and j while I was pulling in the urgent care in Atlanta. And the, one, the, the, the nurse practitioner said, well, sir, here's the problem. Anytime you bite a hangnail, your mouth is full of bacteria. And it is 99.9% .9 of the time that the bacteria in your mouth got into that hangnail. And I said, isn't that amazing? I took pictures and videos, sent it to the family and everything. Uh, uh, note to self, don't bite no more hangnails. Use some clippers from now on, right? Because what you think is innocent and small can end up being something major and ongoing. I say all that to say that I don't take no chances with the enemy. Bind up that spirit of sickness, bind up that spirit of infirmity, cast out every spirit of doubt and unbelief. Uh, <clears throat> while I'm driving to urgent care. Let me add that one more time. All right, so then finally, finally, I got to say that these signs and wonders shall follow them. By no means will hurt them, and they will lay hands on the sick. Would you at least give God a chance? I know you're not feeling well, and I know what the media says, and I know what the naysayers say, but would you at least give God a chance? and get some oil and lay hands on your son or your daughter or your husband or your wife, would you at least give the Holy Ghost an opportunity to do something? If we're going to believe the Word, believe the Word. My time is up. Would you stand to your feet? My time is up. Elder Hall, I wasn't satisfied. I went back into prayer about this scripture. And I said, God, I don't want to do any injustice to the word. But maybe there's something else you want to convey to the people of City Church North Lake this morning. As it relates to signs. Are you with me? Stay with me, stay with me. I won't, I won't be but a minute. This is going to bless you. Remember now, Acts 5.12. It was through the hands of the apostles that signs and wonders were done among the people. Remember that God is a God of signs and wonders. And those signs and wonders were not restricted to just a place in the Middle East, nor were they restricted to a, a chronological calendar or a certain period of time. For he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And his, Peter says that his and Joel says, and Peter reiterates it in Acts 2, that his promises, Acts 2.38, are for generations to generations to generations. So whatever God was doing in the Old Testament, he now does in the New Testament. And whatever he's doing in the New Testament, he's doing right now. This is not what they call a secessionist uh, uh, theology. We believe that God is still healing today, if only you'd believe. All things are possible to them that believe. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? All things, somebody say all things. All things are possible. Hallelujah. To them that believe. Signs. Signs. I thought about signs. What is the purpose of signs? What is the purpose of signs? Yes, they point to something. Yes, they display, they show, they showcase, they direct. 
They instruct. They inform. What is the purpose of signs? They warn. I had to pull out the old Vines expository dictionary today. It is a mark to distinguish a person from one another. Where we get the word signature from? Your signature is like no one else. It distinguishes you. It separates you. And as I was praying, saw the manifestation of the Holy Spirit this morning. When God says, I am going to allow these signs and wonders to follow you. I believe in the first five. Healing, tongues, demons, snake. I believe in all of that. But could it be that God wants to use you as a display of success? Could it be that God wants to use you as a showcase, distinguished showcase of what healing looks like? I mean, I'm thinking to myself, he said, you will be a sign to your generation. And all of the things you've had to contend with you thought was in vain and for nothing. Maybe, just maybe, just maybe, you are now the sign to your children and your children's children that the curse was removed. And now you walk an increase. I don't know who I'm talking to, but somebody's on the verge and on the brink of being debt free. And it will be a sign. I don't want you to think that a sign just has a spiritual component. But these signs and wonders and miracles. So I begin to write in journal that the signs for the people of God will be favor, unusual favor, undeserved favor, favor you can't buy, favor you can't apply for, favor your credit score would never afford you. I heard the Holy Ghost say signs of increase. What do you mean by that? God will take a little effort but when he blesses it it multiplies this is why he talks about the mustard seed it is the smallest of seed but produces the largest of plant and what did Jesus say he didn't speak about a watermelon seed or a squash seed or a cantaloupe seed he said if you have faith as a what mustard seed 